Well, Brenda, thank you very much indeed. If you're new to us, um, you need three pieces of equipment uh, in the next few minutes. You need an open Bible, uh, page 748 if you're using a church Bible. Uh, You also need the white bulletin, and you'll notice on the inside of the white bulletin on the right-hand side, there is an outline uh, which gives you some idea where we're going in the next few minutes. And you also need the green sheet, uh, because it is our practice here at St Barnabas to use the passage that is preached on Sunday as the basis for our Bible studies on Wednesday evening in home group. So do please keep all those three things closely to hand. Uh, I am going to pray and ask for God's help. God our Father, we know that only when you open a door for the word into our hearts can your word enter and change us. And so we pray that as we come to your word now that you would do that great work of opening a door into each heart here. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So John 1, 1 to 18, the the word for today is the title. Now my text uh, this morning is verse 14. In fact it's less than that, it's only the first four words of verse 14 where John says, the word became flesh. The word became flesh. That is going to be a base camp for us this morning. And from there, we're going to attempt to scale the dizzy heights of verses 1 and 2. Uh, I should warn you up front that it's not going to be an especially easy climb. Uh, This is one of the most profound passages in the whole of the New Testament. And we could spend several weeks on it and still not exhaust everything John has to say. So it is going to take some effort and concentration from you as well as me, but I can assure you that when we get there, when we reach the summit, the view is well worth it. Uh, But let's start with a picture. Um, As you know, Lord God has given us four Gospels. And of course, all four Gospels are reporting the same thing. The coming of the Son of God into the world. And yet each Gospel tells the story from a slightly different point of view. So when the early church was looking for ways to explain the differences between the four Gospels, they did something really rather odd. You and I would never think of doing it. They went back to the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament. You don't need to turn to it. But let me tell you that the prophet Ezekiel had a vision and it's recorded for us in the first chapter of his book. And in his vision, he sees four faces. There's a man, there's a lion, there's an ox, and there's an eagle. And what they did was they picked one of those faces or creatures for each of the four Gospels. Uh, So Matthew's Gospel, for example, 
uh, presents Jesus as the new Moses. That's the big idea in Matthew. He is the supreme teacher of Israel as far as Matthew is concerned. And so the early church represented the Gospel of Matthew as a man. Mark's Gospel shows Jesus with astonishing authority as the king of God's kingdom. And so in the early church, that Mark's Gospel was represented by a lion, the king. Luke, as you know, I think, has a very different emphasis. Uh, Luke shows Jesus as the strong, patient bearer of the burdens of the poor, of the outcast, and of the needy. And so Luke was pictured as an ox, beast of burden. And so what did that leave for John? Well, it left the eagle. And the reason they chose the eagle was because of the passage we're looking at this morning, the first 18 verses. So just imagine in your mind's eye the eagle flying high in the sky with its its keen gaze, seeing a vast panorama spread out before it. But the eagle can fly higher than most other birds, so it can see more and it can see further. So when the early church looked at the beginning of John's Gospel, it was John's picture of eternity that gripped them. Uh, Because it was the beginning of all things. It's about God himself. And this tremendously grand, impressive, profound opening to the Gospel gives us, if you like, an eagle's eye view of Jesus. Right at the very beginning of the book, John is saying, this is who we're talking about. I'm writing this gospel to persuade you to believe in Jesus as your saviour. And before we get started, I'm going to tell you who he really is. And that's what the first 18 verses are all about. Sometimes called the prologue, which is just a fancy word for the introduction. And very significantly, you'll notice that John describes Jesus as the Word. Now that sounds rather strange to us, and yet that is how John describes Jesus here. The Word. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that through Jesus Christ, God is communicating with us. He's sending us a message. I mean, that's what words are for, isn't it? Words are vehicles of communication. So if I want you to know what I'm thinking, I've got to put it into words, haven't I? I mean, I suppose you could make an inspired guess if my face was rather contorted. You say, oh dear, Simon must be angry. Uh, Or uh, perhaps if I had another expression, you may say, gosh, Simon looks as though something's about to make him laugh. That would be an inspired guess. But you know perfectly well that if we want to communicate precisely, we have to put it into words. If there's something I want you to do, I've got to tell you. I've got to put it into words. And the words carry meaning from my mind to your mind. And John is saying, 
That's who Jesus Christ is. Jesus is the way that God communicates with us. God wants you to know about himself. He wants you to know about yourself. How does he do it? He does it through a person. He does it through his son. Jesus is the word. God is, as it were, taking the initiative and sending us a message. Now think about that. I mean, we're surrounded, aren't we, by a confusion of millions and billions of human words. But Jesus is the word. He is the supreme word. He is the ultimate word. He's the most important communication that any of us can ever hear. And in him, God is telling you and me what he wants us to know and what he wants us to do. Now this morning I just want to say three things about this word. And the first thing that I want to say from verses 1 and 2 is that the word is divine. Just have a look at the first three words of John's Gospel. What do they remind you of? In the beginning. In the beginning. Well, we know what they remind us of, don't we? They remind us of the very first words of the entire Bible. Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And you see, John is very deliberately starting his gospel by quoting Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning. Now think about it. The beginning was the moment of creation, wasn't it? It was the beginning of everything that we see and know. It was the beginning of space. It was the beginning of matter. You see, before that event, there wasn't even so much as a single atom. Not a single molecule. There was nothing. There was no world. There was no space. There were no planets. There was no universe. None of that existed. But John says, in the beginning, the word was already there. He was there before the beginning. He was there apart from the beginning. He was beyond the beginning. He was above the beginning. Jesus existed before there was anything at all. Before time, before space before matter. So he's eternal. He was never created. He was never made. Our finite minds can't really take this in. We can't really understand the concept of before the beginning. But suffice it to say that in the beginning the word was already there. And John tells us, doesn't he, that the Word was with God. Or a better translation would be that the Word was face to face with God. So, the Word isn't distant 
from Almighty God. He's not far away from God. He's close to God. He and God are, as it were, looking at each other. And uh, he describes him in verse 18, if you notice that at the end of the passage, as the one who is at the Father's side, or perhaps a better translation, on the Father's breast. He's that close to God. Now put these things together, you see. It's saying that the word is not only eternal, he's not only uncreated, he's not only very close to God, but then notice in the text at the beginning that John goes a step further. He says in verse 1 that the word was God. Not only was he close to God, he was God himself in his essential nature. Now let's just think about that for a moment. Because let's suppose um, on a Saturday morning somebody rings your doorbell and uh, you open it and you find two Jehovah's Witnesses standing on the doormat. They always come in twos. And uh, what they're going to do is they are going to refer you to this verse. So let's get ready for it. This is one of their great verses. And what they're going to say to you is um, that the Greek of this verse is saying that Jesus is a God, but not the God. Now let me tell you that that is a fundamental misunderstanding of the Greek. Don't panic, we're not going to get heavily into Greek grammar this morning. But the Greek here is very, very precise indeed. And John is choosing his words with scalpel-like precision. And what he's saying is something like this. Now pay attention. The word was fully God, but he was not everything that God is. So he was fully God. He was God in every sense of the word. But there is more to God than the Word. And that's what the Greek is saying to us with marvellous precision and accuracy. The thought is extremely difficult for us to grasp. The Word was God. He was fully God. Utterly, completely, essentially God. But, when you look at the Word, you haven't actually said all that can be said about God because there is both God the Father and God the Son. And later on in the Gospel we're told that there is also God the Holy Spirit. God the Son was already there in the beginning and he's face to face with the Father and he is God and yet the Father and the Son are distinct from one another. Three persons in the Godhead and yet one God. So Jesus the Word is divine. That is the first thing that John is telling us. And uh, as we said last week, that is not actually believed by many, many people today. Even many people who go to church. They admire Jesus, 
They think he's a wonderful person, a terrific religious teacher, a great moral example, in many ways the best of men. But they don't worship him. And they don't believe that he's divine. And in fact, they're even rather uncomfortable talking about Jesus. They'll talk about God till the cows come home. But they're not really very comfortable talking about Jesus. And even you and I who believe that and we confess it and we say, yes, Jesus is God, even we in practice can actually treat Jesus as if he were not God. We can treat him, can't we, as if he exists purely for our benefit, uh, as if he's there just to answer our prayers or to be at our beck and call, to be our servant, to be our friend, to make life easy and convenient for us. Jesus is my helper. But nothing more. Now, friends, when we do that, what we're doing is we're making Jesus out to be way less than he actually is. We're bringing him down to our level. And can I say that I think there is a danger that we are sometimes too much at ease about Jesus, too comfortable about the presence of Jesus. Last week I mentioned that um, his best earthly friend was the writer of this gospel. Uh, the Apostle John. He was closer to Jesus than any other human being. But listen to this. In the book of Revelation, uh, John tells us that when he saw his best friend as he really is in his risen glory, he says this, I fell at his feet as though dead. You see, he was, he was utterly overwhelmed by his majesty and by his glory. So when I'm speaking to you of Jesus, I'm speaking to you of the one who is divine. The one who we worship. Uh, the one who is so far above us and beyond us. The supreme, exalted saviour. And that is the first thing that John tells us about the word. The word is divine. But secondly, we must move on and notice that John says the word is human. Okay, now this is where you've got to put the oxygen mask on and we've got to do a bit of work here, so pay attention. Everything that I have said so far would have been accepted by most intelligent people in the first century. You see, whether they were Christians or not, uh, whether they had any form of religion that was like Christianity or not, when they read the first two or three verses of John's Gospel, they would have said that's absolutely right. Yep, we believe that. No problem. Because, you see, nearly everybody in the Greek-speaking world at that time believed in something called the Word. I apologise for the Greek, but the Greek word for word is, somebody? Logos, yeah. We get our word logic from it. And we get all of the ologies from it. Biology, geology, archaeology. All the ologies come from this Greek word logos, 
which means word. Now you see, the Greeks were seriously intelligent people. And they looked at the world. And as they looked at the world around them, they saw order. They saw regularity. Uh, They could predict what time the sun would rise and what time the sun would set. Their scientists back then calculated the distance from the earth to the sun and they were very, very close to being absolutely right. They knew what temperature water boiled. Everywhere they looked, they saw method, they saw order. And uh, they saw that the world isn't a mess. The world isn't chaos. If you throw something up into the air, it's going to come down again. And so, you see, they saw that there is a law, a logic, a reason behind the way the world functions. And the Greeks said, why is that? Why is it? Why do we see all this order in the world? Why can we study the world? Why can we have our sciences and get terribly predictable results? They said there's got to be a mind behind this. There must be some kind of force or rational faculty, a sort of an ordering principle in the universe. And they called that the Logos. They called it the Word. And they said, you know, this Logos is the mind that orders the universe. And if you want to call it God, well, we don't have a problem with that. And they would have read these verses, you see, at the beginning of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And they would have said, yep, no problem with that whatsoever. But then, John says something that they would have absolutely and utterly rejected with laughter and with disgust. What does John say? Verse 14. The Word became flesh. Now notice the word that John uses. He doesn't say the Word became man. He doesn't say the Word became human. That would have been bad enough for the Greeks. No, he picks the most earthy, almost offensive and crude term he could possibly imagine. And I think we perhaps might get some of the shock factor that this had on them. If I was to say to you, the word became meat. That I think would have kind of the same emotional impact on you that John's phrase had on them you would say, hang on a moment. Is that any way to talk about the Son of God? The Word became meat. But you see, that is the kind of language that John is using. You see, for the Greeks, the gods were pure spirit. Um, They had absolutely nothing to do with this material world. They sort of lived far removed in a spiritual Realm, They weren't concerned about us or our bodies or our lives. No rational human being in the first century would have believed that a God would become flesh. They wouldn't have believed it. They might appear to be flesh, 
They might pretend to be flesh. They might seem to come to earth sometimes as human beings, but nobody would have believed that the word would become flesh. And yet that is what John says. The divine word that was there from all eternity and has existed since before the beginning of the world, what did he do? He was born. He became an embryo in his mother's womb. He became flesh. And in that phrase, he became flesh, there's an important idea. Because he didn't lose anything of what he had. Friends, this is addition. It is not subtraction. He never ceased to be God. He remained God. But something was added to God and that was flesh. It's the mystery that we call the incarnation. And incarnation is just from two simple Latin words which just mean becoming flesh. And John wants to drive this lesson home to his hearers in the clearest possible way that Jesus became a human being. And he uses the the strongest, most startling, even the most shocking word he can find. The word became flesh. It's an awesome mystery. And you see, just as you and I must never, never, never forget that Jesus is divine, so we must never forget that Jesus is fully human. And I think perhaps we're more in danger of forgetting that than forgetting that he's divine. You see, you and I can have a very sentimental, super-spiritual view of Jesus and forget that he was a real man, that he sweated, that he had a pulse rate, that he had a digestive system, that he got his hair cut. We can forget those things. And it's a wonderful truth, you see, because it's telling us, isn't it, that in the person of Jesus, God has become one of us. God has taken on our life. And God understands you from the inside, from his personal experience. God has handled and he's smelled and he's tasted life on this earth. God knows from experience the smell of a rose. God knows from experience the taste of bread. God knows from experience what it's like to have your feet bruised on a stony path. God has watched the sun go up and come down. God has lain down weary on a bed and fallen asleep. And so he's able to understand and identify with us in a radically new way because of the the incarnation. You remember that the writer to the Hebrews says that Jesus is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, why is he able to do that? 
See, he doesn't say, does he, that he's able to do that because he's God and he knows everything, although, of course, that is true. No, he says that he's able to help because he was tempted, you see. And the incarnation also gives us this tremendous reassurance about the value of every human being. I've sometimes said, I wonder if you have too, people say that for God to become a human being would be a bit like you or I becoming a worm. And they're trying to say by that uh, illustration that God had to come down a very long way indeed to become a human being. There is a sense in which that is true. I've got to say to you, that illustration is completely wrong. Because when God made man, He made him in his own image. And he made man in his own image because he knew that his son was going to come into the world as a man, not a worm. And human beings, you see, were designed to be a suitable vehicle for God to come to earth. And so, yes, in a sense, for God to become man is humiliation, yes, but it is not degradation. It is not that. Because all human beings, without exception, are very precious to God. But there's something even more significant about the incarnation than that. The fact that Jesus became a real man means that God was able to die. And of course he did die, didn't he? A real and very terrible death. J.B. Phillips was uh, a famous Bible translator in the middle of the last century. And there's a place in his writings where he says that as he was translating the Gospels, He he was astonished by the the deeply human nature of Christ's suffering. I've given you a quotation on the back of the green question sheet. You might like to turn to it. This is what J.B. Phillips says. The record of the behaviour of Jesus on his way to the cross and of the crucifixion itself is almost unbearable, chiefly because it is so intensely human. If, as I believe, this was indeed God focused in a human being, we can see for ourselves that here is no play acting. This is the real thing. There are no supernatural advantages for this man, No celestial rescue party delivered him from the power of evil men and his agony was not mitigated by any superhuman anaesthetic. We can only guess what frightful anguish of mind and spirit wrung from him the terrible words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So in our text we learn, don't we, that the word is divine. And we learn that the word is human. 
And now here is the most important bit. The word is transforming. Because John here wasn't just writing for Greeks. He was writing also for the Jews of his day. And for the Jew, the term word, the word, was an extremely familiar phrase. But it had a very different meaning for him. For him, it wasn't the impersonal, invisible, rational principle behind creation. It wasn't that. No, it was packed with creative, dynamic power. That's what the word meant to the Jew. It was the word that called the entire universe into existence. I'm sure you know that the book of Psalms was Israel's hymn book. Psalm 33 verse 6 says this, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. By the word of the Lord. So think about it. In the beginning, there was nothing. Six days later, there was a rich, full universe. What happened? God spoke. God spoke. His word did it all. God said, let there be light. There was light. God said, let there be living creatures, and it was so. So you see, for them, the word was powerful, powerful creative energy. The word, we're told, brought order out of chaos. The word brought fruitfulness from sterility. The word brought beauty out of formlessness. The word brought life out of no life. And the word did it all. So for the Jew, you see, the word was the mighty creative force that brought all reality into existence from absolutely nothing. Astronomers tell us that there are a hundred billion stars in the average galaxy. A hundred billion, I can't get my mind around that. And there are at least a hundred million galaxies in the universe that we know of. Einstein said that we may only have discovered one billionth of the universe. So how many stars are there? Ask Michael afterwards, he's good at maths. (laughs) Now, but just think about this with me for a moment. That power is available to you and me in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in slightly different words, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He says this, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, that's creation, for God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge 
of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, the power that created the universe is the power that makes somebody a Christian. You ever thought of that? That's what becoming a Christian means. It means a new creation. And that's why John in this book talks about being born again. We'll get there. And it's why John uses these words right at the very beginning, in the beginning, because he's encouraging you and me to make a new beginning, to make a fresh start. See, when we believe in Jesus, it is a new beginning. We're new people. It's a new world. Everything is different. And John, in this passage, isn't simply looking backwards to the first creation. He's actually pointing forward to the new creation, and specifically the new creation in our lives. And how do we become new people? We become new people in exactly the same way that the universe came into existence. By the Word. The Word brought the universe into being and the Word makes you and I into new people. Now you might be sitting here this morning and uh, you're not yet a Christian. And you might be thinking, well, I'm not sure I want to be a Christian because I don't know if I could change enough to be a Christian. If that's what you're thinking, my friend, I have to tell you, you are absolutely right. You can't change enough to be a Christian. But Jesus can change you. He made the universe. I think he could probably change your heart, couldn't he? Perhaps you're saying, I'm not really sure that I believe. Jesus can help you believe. Jesus can take away all your doubts and all your questions. He can answer them and he can give you repentance and faith as a gift. Because it is a gift. Or perhaps you're already a Christian, but you've got a sin in your life that's really bothering you. And you're saying, I've been struggling with this thing for years. I can't seem to get victory over it. Jesus can change you. Go on building on the rock. You know, perhaps we look at our personality flaws. We've all got them. I've got them. You've got them. And we look at other people who seem to be so gifted and have their lives so wonderfully together and we say, you know, there's there's nothing I can do about it. But Jesus can change you. He is the powerful, creative, transforming word. You know, we read in these first 18 verses, if you read them carefully, of people who started out as enemies of God. When Jesus first arrived on the scene, they didn't want him. And yet some of those people ended up becoming children of God. The people who started out rejecting Jesus in the end believed in him. And remember this, take this away into into the week ahead of you. 
I said a moment ago that in the beginning, the word brought order out of chaos. I can't see into your heart this morning. But perhaps your heart and your inner life are chaos. Jesus can bring order. The word brought fruitfulness out of sterility. Perhaps you really want to be a better person, but you don't know how. Well, Jesus can make you a better person. He can change us. And he goes on changing us until that day when we see him face to face and will be perfectly like him. Last week I said, didn't I, that the Gospel of John is the Gospel of decision. There are no neutrals in this Gospel. So you can't sit on the fence. You're either for Jesus or you're against him. And I ask you this morning, which do you want to be? Do you want to be against Jesus? Is that the decision you want to make for your life and for for your eternity? Are you going to say, seriously, are you going to say, well, he might be divine, but I'm going to be against him. He became man, but I don't care. I'm going to be against him. He's infinitely powerful, but I'm going to risk it. I'm going to be against him. My dear friend, please don't make that decision. It's the worst decision you could ever make. Are we going to decide for him? You know, in this passage, John reminds us um, how, how big... Jesus is. How awesome. I don't know if you're familiar with the stories of C.S. Lewis, the Chronicles of Narnia, but there's a rather delightful moment in Prince Caspian. If you know the stories, you'll know that uh, in in, uh, those writings, God is represented by a lion called Aslan. And there's a place in the story where one of the children, Lucy, Uh, hasn't seen uh, Aslan for a long time, and eventually she meets him again. Welcome, child, he says. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That's because you're older, said Aslan. Not because you're actually bigger, Lucy asked. I'm not bigger, said Aslan. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Now you see, that is the experience of growing as a Christian, isn't it? It's seeing how big Jesus really is. It's grasping his majesty, his kindness and his power more and more. Friends, if in our series you begin to see the greatness of Jesus and begin to see how big he really is, I promise you this, you will have the privilege of an effective testimony and a fruitful life. So this term, may God make his light shine into your heart and mine to give each one of us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ.
Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for providing such a wonderful Saviour, such a wonderful person to whom we can commit our lives with complete confidence. Thank you that our Saviour is God, God the Son, the creator of the universe. Thank you that he became human and lived on this earth shared our life and died for us on the cross. Thank you that he is infinitely and wonderfully powerful. Lord, we look at our problems, the the problems in our own hearts, the problems in our families and loved ones, and they seem very big to us. But they are not big to our Lord Jesus. He is so vast, so almighty, so infinite in power. Help us to realise what a glorious thing it is to have Jesus as our Saviour, as our friend and as our Lord. Help each one of us to leave this place today rejoicing that we really are trusting in him. And we pray especially for anybody here this morning who has not yet reached that point of committing their lives to Jesus. We pray that by your Spirit, in your perfect time, you would enable them to put all their trust in him. And we ask it for his sake. Amen.